Okay, and welcome to week four, class one of uh, Phil 2500, Introduction to Feminist Philosophy. Today we are talking about Maria Lugones and Elizabeth Spellman's article, Have We Got a Theory for You? Feminist Theory, Cultural Imperialism, and the Demand for the Woman's Voice. So first, just a few kind of housekeeping things. Um, the lectures are now going to be posted uh, also as podcasts. So hopefully this will give you contr um, control of the playback speed of the recording. And currently the podcast is on Spotify. It's available on Spotify. Um, so I'll post the link on eClass to that. And then it should be available on other podcast um in other podcast places like on Apple Podcast or Google Podcast, and I will post the links as soon as those come up. Um, this I'm looking into recording on Zoom as well um, because I've heard from a, a few students that there's a transcript feature on Zoom that might be useful. Uh, I have a few hesitations about that. So part of why I'm interested in the podcast is because I want to encourage you to get away from your computers, um, but I'll keep you up to, um, up to speed on what's going on with that. So today we are moving into a new section on epistemology. We're going to have two weeks on epistemology, and epistemology is just a philosophical term of art or overly big word to when you could say use much more uh, easily understood smaller words jargon so epistemology is it just means the study of knowledge so this can be um, all kinds of, of things so for example epist some epistemological questions are things like, why do some things count as knowledge and others don't? What grounds true knowledge? Why do some questions for investigation come up more often than others? Um, and, you know, lots of others. What makes something knowledge? Like maybe we already asked that question. So... This is going to be the start of two weeks looking at um, epistemology and feminist epistemology. I, I mean, I think feminism and feminist philosophy has really um, raised some really profound and important questions related to knowledge and, know, and knowing and who can be a knower and um, whose knowledge who's who's um who gets to count their their ideas as as knowledge so um for example here maybe we'll start off with a story so so in 1845 captain sir john franklin departed from england and he was captain of two ships the Arubis and the Ter and the HMS Terror, and they were assigned by by Britain to 
traverse the last unnavigated sections of the Northwest Passage in the Canadian Arctic. But the expedition was met with disaster when both ships and their crews got trapped in the ice in what is today Nunavut. So for many years after these um, ships were lost, so they got trapped in the ice, they were abandoned, and then um, they disappeared. So there was a search for the missing expedition three years later, and um, they couldn't find anything. And they actually didn't find the Erebus ship until 2014. And you know where they found that ship? They found that ship sunk near the island called Umiaktalik, which translates into English as being, there is a boat here. So what's the why is this story a good story to tell at the start of a lecture on epistemology because for hundreds of years you have a group the british looking for a sunken ship and you have the locals the inuit people of nunavut who have who actually have um named the island a boat is here. So obviously they had they had knowledge and and actually reading the reading about the Franklin expedition, the Inuit have oral histories about this event. They have um, stories about Franklin that seem now from um, even more data collection to be very accurate but all of this uh, was ignored by the people looking for the ship because this group well one I mean one interpretation is to say that this knowing say oral history or through naming or just being Inuit people who know things they weren't seen as knowers or those things weren't seen as knowledge maybe they're seen as some you know something that's seen as less valuable say to be superstition or um you know just to be myths or stories rather than knowledge so now that we've talked now that you have that story in the background um we'll talk i'll talk a little bit about epistemology generally before um, we dive into the article. So as I said, epistemology is just the fancy word for the study of knowledge. And by far the majority of feminist work in epist epistemology is best understood as a form of social epistemology. And we can, um, we have uh, Elizabeth Anderson's definition of social epistemology, which is a branch of epistemology that investigates the influence of socially constructed conceptions like gender, race, sex, on the production of knowledge. 
and also the way that knowledge is used to maintain and perpetuate systems of oppression. So another way to think about this is um, as power sensitive, a power sensitive understanding of knowledge, maintenance and production. And power here is referring to um, social power. So power influences on, on this view on um, feminist, many feminist epistemologies are about looking at the way power influences the production of knowledge of what of what is known of who can know um, and and other things related to to knowledge so you know one example another example of this is the role that science has played in in perpetuating sexist ideas and racist ideas Science helped codify the concept of race as a biological category that was not simply descriptive, but also hierarchical. And science has done the same thing with gender, has, has made um, gender a biological category, but not just a descriptive one, a one that um, involves a, a hierarchy. One of the key features of feminist epistemology which is responsible for some significant contributions to epistemology more generally, has been the serious commitment to developing normative epistemological accounts. So not just descriptive ones where what's being described are the current social practices of knowledge productions, but a normative account is also about understanding how we ought to know, and how we can improve knowledge practices. So feminist social epistemologists have felt the need to incorporate this normative dimension, this how ought knowledge be produced, or how ought one distinguish a knower from a non-knower, or knowledge from non-knowledge. So feminist social epistemologists have felt the need to incorporate this into their social analyses in a particular, pr particularly pressing way because feminist political demands depend on an epistemically normative claim. What does that mean? It means part of the feminist political um, move is to say that some claims to knowledge are better and worse. For example, in order to criticize sexist knowledge claims and support non-sexist knowledge claims, or in order to criticize racist knowledge claims and support non-racist knowledge claims, part of what you're doing is saying one is knowledge and one is non-knowledge, or one is better and worse knowledge. And so part of this, in order to do that, you need a, you need a normative um, theory of epistemology. You need theories about knowledge that help you help give you criteria for saying what is better knowledge and what is worse knowledge. So 
that's all I'm going to say about epistemology at this point. We're, we'll read, um, next lecture will be on a recent article about standpoint theory, which is one of the central feminist epistemological theories. So we'll talk more about that next time. But now let's dive into the article. So Elizabeth Spellman is the Barbara Richmond... 1940 professor in the humanities and a professor of philosophy at Smith College. Spellman's interests are in what has come to be called critical race feminism, which is most thoroughly represented in her 1988 book, In Essential Woman, Problems of Exclusion in Feminist Thought. In it and related articles, she investigates the implications of the intersection and intertwining of racial, gender, and other aspects of women's identities. Another focus of her work has been the ways in which emotions are shaped by and give shape to political dimensions of human relationships. Maria Lugones, who, when I was looking to find a biography, found out that she passed away July 14th, just of this past year at the age of 76, which is very sad because, I mean, not because, but one, one reason is she was a very brilliant, very brilliant feminist thinker. And it's real, I'm really excited to be reading her today. So Lugones was an Argentine-born, Argentine-born? Argentine-born lesbian feminist who came to the United States in the 1960s. She earned her bachelor's degree from the University of California at Los Angeles and her master's degree and doctoral degree in philosophy from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Her scholarly work touched on multiple disciplines, ethics, social political philosophy, the philosophy of race and gender, feminist theory, Latin American philosophy and politics, popular education, theories of resistance, but of all her achievements, she is perhaps best known as a trailblazer in decolonial feminism, which links European colonialism to gender roles. Central to her political and intellectual work was building coalitions among women of color and grassroots work as a popular educator outside of the academy. This spring, she received the 2020 Franz Fanon Lifetime Achievement Award from the Caribbean Philosophical Association, and in 2016, she was named Distinguished Woman of Philosopher of the Year by the Society for Women in Philosophy. So when we read this paper or when you um, listen to this lecture, remember that this is um, a paper we're reading for its epistemological claims. So keep an eye out for that. And I also think the paper has a lot of shared, um, shared aims with the Bell Hooks paper that we read last week about working together, women working together, and, and other allies. Um, so that's something I was thinking about in reading this paper as well as thinking about, um, you know, for the male students in my class, 
maybe have felt that uh, much of this work doesn't speak to them, I think this is a really great paper uh, for, for you as well, male students, because a lot of the discussion about how to think together, how to theorize together between insiders and outsiders can apply to all kinds of outsiders, I think. So in this paper, Lugonis and Spellman are talking specifically to white Anglo women. But I think that we can, ex or maybe we can at least think about whether we can extend what they say beyond that. So let's get started. So first there's a prologue in Spanish, which um, I didn't understand. And I hope some of you, I imagine some of you did, which is wonderful. And part of the point is not to understand. So if you didn't understand, like me, then that's okay too. Because, you know, at the very beginning, Lugonis and Spellman are talking about the way that even just everything being written in English in our theorizing. So remember here, they're talking about um, theorizing women. So this is what we've done over the last three weeks. We've looked at Beauvoir theorizing about woman, what is woman, a whole, you know, 900 pages of theorizing about women, trying to describe what it is, why it happens, how it happens. And then we looked at some criticisms of these from um, critical race feminist theories and the, but these were also theories, right? Theories of inter intersectionality. How does that change our, how should that change our theories? Um, theories about sisterhood. What, what, um, how should we work together? And this is another theories of the creation of other identities, right? Of, of native identities. How does that change the conversation? How are those theories, how is that theory different? How does it inform um, how we think about Beauvoir's work. So this paper is a paper about theorizing. So much like Bell Hooks' work on sisterhood, this one is very similar but a little bit more specific. Can we, can we do feminist theory together? Can we answer the demand for women's voices together? Can we answer the demand for woman's voice? Because we need to do that collectively. This is the lesson that we learned from um, criticism or critical readings of Beauvoir is that we can't have one white woman who just theorizes about women. That's not going to work. So we need to do that if we're going to do that, we need to do that differently. And this paper is all is thinking all about that. How do we do that? Should we even do it at all? And um, how do how do we do that? Well, what is it going to look like to do that thinking that knowing together? Well, so I'll actually st stop here, because we're almost at 20 minutes, and we'll go through the whole paper in the next half. Okay, see you soon. So welcome to part two of our Phil 2500 Intro to Feminist Philosophy 
lecture on Lugones and Spellman's um, article, Have We Got a Theory for You? Feminist Theory, Cultural Imperialism, and the Demand for the Woman's Voice. So the start of this article is in a white Anglo teaching feminist theory voice. And they talk first about how, a little bit about what feminism is. So they say, one thing that feminism is about is a response to the fact that women have been left out of or, or included in demeaning and disfiguring ways in what has almost been an exclusively male account of the world. So here we have our first epistemological claim that f feminism, part of what feminist theory or feminism is about is responding to um, a knowing of the world, of human experiences, of um, and and the world beyond that. That is a male has been a male only knowing of the world, and I mean I think we know at this point to include white and um, of a certain class in that in that voice. That description of that voice as well and they say part of what feminism is about is to give our own accounts and that this is not only part of feminism but it's a part of human living that part of human living is talking about our experiences and talking about how um and talking about the world what the world is like to us and that our experiences are deeply influenced by what is said about them and here we have another epistemological claim which is that um, that knowing not only um, is descriptive or normative which is we talked about in the last lecture but also generative which means not only do knowings about the, our experiences, for example, those aren't just descriptions, but those help create the very experience of those things. So later in the paper, they talk about how white Anglo women's understanding of women has sh changes how other people experience themselves when you're um, when you're t told who you are and we can think about other examples of this so men being told they have they don't have feelings they can't cry that changes their very experience of emotions of what of what crying feels like maybe that adds a layer of guilt of shame of um making you feel like it's, it's not manly all these things are ways in which that experience is shaped by what you're told about that experience so they say look part of human living is to talk about our experiences and 
those experiences are influenced by what other people say about them. And they say, this is the phenomenon of internalized oppression. We couldn't explain internalized oppression if it, if it weren't the case that we come to know ourselves also through the way other people, quote unquote, know us. So one, I mean, another way to understand this epistemological claim is that knowing is not done alone. We don't know ourselves alone. We don't know our experiences alone. We don't know our place in the world all on our own. So they say, look, we can think about um, men's accounts of women li- women's lives at best as being false. They're just mistakes. It's a function of ignorance. And at worst, we can think about them as malicious lies, a function of a knowledgeable desire to exploit and oppress. And here we have another epistemological claim, which is that knowing and not knowing can be done differently so we can not know because of we just don't know like i don't know what the capital of mali is and that's just ignorance but we might think that not knowing can also be willful you can be willfully ignorant so i know that i can google it i could google the capital of mali but I just don't want to. So there's, it's not just, oh, I don't know it. It's, I know that I could know it. I don't want to know it. Wilford ignorance. And you can add other qualifiers to that. So in the, in this case, malicious, malicious lies might be because you, you desire to exploit and oppress. So I, I don't care whether I'm right or wrong because actually my goal is something completely different. And so I'm just, I'm telling these other lies because I, my purpose is really to exploit and oppress. Okay, so we have our problem. We, the, there's been only male accounts of the world, of women, of women's lives, of women's experiences, what it's like to be a woman. And feminism is answering this call, this this problem. And what does this call need? Well, it needs women's voice. Women's voices need to be heard and attended to. And um, this is important. So they give some reason. It's important because it increases the chances of true accounts of women's lives. The articulation of experience is among the hallmarks of a self-determined individual. So this is what we talked about before, that Giving an account of your life and your experience is just part of human living. It grows out of this complaint that women's voices haven't been um, heard. Okay, so now we have the we have the problem and we have the answer. We're gonna we need women's voice, but the complaint this complaint that the women's voice is missing doesn't specify which women have been silenced and they say look in one way this is appropriate because virtually all women have had no voice or virtually all women have been silenced but this is also misleading because it's it's different depending on what kind of women what kind of woman you are 
you might have experienced more or less silence or silencing, more or less silencing. And the, it, the demand for a woman's voice also ignores the fact that um, it's only possible for a woman who doesn't feel vulnerable with respects to other parts of her identity that she could even think of her voice as, quote, woman's voice, as being simply or essentially woman's voice without qualifiers. And this is something we've seen repeatedly, right? That there are these invisible markers and only certain people fit into the invisible markers. So, you know, it's going to be, it's been hard for a black woman to speak as woman this was something in Crenshaw's that we looked at in Crenshaw's um, article on intersectionality where the black women plaintiffs were in the class action cases were seen as being not representative of women but somehow a white woman doesn't have that issue the the claim is that a white woman can represent women, but a black woman is always a black woman and never a woman. So um, Lugonis and Spellman are clear to point out that the, this demand for women's voice grows out of this complaint that women's voices have been silenced, but that this demand ignores important things about intersectionality that we've been talking about. And they talk about things that this demand for women's voice reflects. So it, re it presupposes, it assumes that the silencing of women is systematic and shows up in regular patterned ways that are discoverable and that cause this widespread observ observable phenomenon. It assumes that the silencing of women reveals a systematic power a pattern of power and authority and it presumes that this silencing is unjust and there are particular ways of remedying remedying this injustice and the demand invites particular um, or encourages particular directions of exploration and discourages or excludes others and a final criticism of feminist theory or and this demand of the woman's voice and the feminist theory that has arisen in response to this demand is this discussion about the tail wagging the dog so they write for the most part feminist theory has risen out of the experiences of a very small handful of women even though it, it is then used to reflect a medley of women's voices, all kinds of women's voices. And they write that if these other women's voices who are not heard or who are not included in this theory do not sing in harmony with the theory, then they aren't counted as women's voices. Rather, they are voices of, of women with some kind of qualification. So women as Hispanias, women as black women, 
Um, and so in another sense, there's another sense in which the tail wags the dog, which is that it seems from this way of theorizing about women that white middle-class Anglo women who are speaking for all women must know more about all these other women that they're talking about than those women know about them because the, the white women have become the experts on women. But they write, it's just the opposite. Other women know a lot more about white Anglo women. So BIPOC women know a lot more about white Anglo women, but not through sustained thought like theory requires, not through sustained contemplation, but through the sharp observation that is demanded when you're forced to live in the world created by white middle class people or uh, upper class I guess people then we move on to the next section which is in a Hispania voice so they write um, we means Hispanias and you means white Anglo women so they say I think it is necessary to explain why in so many cases when we, Hispanias, talk to you, white Anglo women, about feminism, we mainly raise the following complaint. The complaint of exclusion, of silencing, of being included in a universe we have not chosen. And they say, look, the facts are that this theorizing uses your language that we have had to understand, which in this case, I, I understand it to mean both English, but also the language of academia, right? Here we are talking about epistemology. Why not just call it the study of knowledge? Think about how many more people that would make sense to <laughs> than epistemology, right? I mean, there is an epistemological claim in itself about who can know, who can know what epistemology means. Only those in the know. Automatically, you're going to exclude all these people from being part of the dialogue with this jargon, with these terms of art. Okay, so they go on to say, yeah, this point, it's... This theorizing happens using your language. It happens in your place. And these things combine to require that we, Hispanias, or outsiders, we have to use your language in your place and this distorts our experience or we're forced to remain silent. So here we have again repeated this idea of um, outsiders having to know insiders worlds in a way that insiders don't have to learn the worlds of the outsider so they write there's nothing that necessitates that you understand our world and they're clear understand our world not as an observer 
but as a participant. And that even when you try to do this to understand the world as a participant, and maybe you feel ill at ease in our world, this is not the same way that we are ill at ease in your world. So here I'm using, um, I'm talking in the language of the article. So you is white women and our is, is Hispania's experiences so um when white when white women are in are ill at ease in a community that's not their own it's not the same as the way hispanias are ill at ease in white culture because white people can leave and can always tell themselves that they will soon be out of there but the reverse is not the same and they write because the wholeness of yourselves, white women, is never touched by us, um, Hispanias. We have no tendency to remake you in our image. But they write out, they write, you white women theorize about women, and we, not white women, are also women. So we understand you to be theorizing about us. And you understand you to be theorizing about us too. And so far, feminist theories don't help Hispanias articulate their own experience. It's not resonating with others outside of this small group. And they write, these theories create in us a schizophrenic split between our concern for ourselves as women, which you are theorizing about and defining and describing the experiences of and ourselves as Hispanias. And those th two things are, um, are contrasting. They're not, they're not, they don't um, make sense together. So they write, the only, so now they start to talk about this investigation together. So how can we, how can we do theorizing that's about women's voice or women's experiences when what we're talking about is such a diverse group? Is this investigation even possible? And they write, the only motive that makes sense to me for white women to join outsiders in this investigation is the motive of friendship and we'll talk um, more about um, about this motive of friendship so they say okay self-interest has also been proposed as a possible motive but this doesn't seem like a realistic move because whatever benefits you're going to get from this journey they're not concrete enough now and they might not be worth your time in the end just as a self um, ben as a benefit just to the self and they write you have no obligation to understand us to abandon your imperialism your universal claims your reduction of us to yourselves simply because they harm us and they say the that they harm us is indicative of something being wrong in these theories but what is wrong with these theories 
Is it because they're only particular theories that have been applied universally? So is Beauvoir right in her description of woman if we think of it as a description of a particular type of woman? And it's why it's wrong is because it's been applied to universally? Is it flawed because it needs translating before it moves to an outsider group? Can these theories be translated? Or is it something about the process itself of theorizing? Now we move on to the section that's titled Some Questionable Assumptions About Feminist Theorizing. And in brackets it says unproblematically in Vicky's and Maria's voice. And I'm so interested to hear what, how you understood this, these, this use of unproblematically or problematically. Because I'm not sure how we're supposed to understand this. Is the unproblematically or problematically um, a descriptor of the Vicky and Maria's voice? Do they, is it suggesting to us that this was something they agreed upon easily? Or is it a description of the content that follows? Is, is it that they both feel what they're saying is not problematic or they don't feel worried about it? There's, they feel confident about what they're saying? So um, we can think about what we take this to mean. Okay, so feminist theories are about the meaning of the experiences of women's lives. And, and in this section they talk about, okay, well what's the relationship between the, the woman who's living that life and the theorizer's account of that life? So they say there's two ways of arriving at an account of another woman's experience. One way is that you, an, out, an, uh, an insider, and me, an outsider, both observe you. And we both give accounts of you. The second way is that I observe me and others like me. And then I give a theory, an account of myself, and I use this account to give an account of you. So we can think about the second way as the Beauvoir way, right? So Beauvoir observes herself and others like herself culturally. She develops an account, um, a theory on the basis of that, of those, um, that, those observations and experiences and then gives account of woman, which is going to include outsiders. So one thing they say about the first way, which is when both the insider and the outsider observe the insider and give an account of the insider, is that it adds a touch of honesty because the outsider is clear that they're giving an outsider's account. Um, they say something about the distance of outsidedness is understood to mark objectivity that's something that maybe we could think about whether distance makes something more objective or maybe there are ways we might think that um, closeness or an ins insider point of view is gonna provide more objectivity I don't know and they ask why is the outsider as an outsider interpreting your behavior and they suggest that maybe if the outsider wants you to understand how 
the outsider sees you, there's the possibility for genuine dialogue. Um, and they worry about the lack of reciprocity. So maybe if we are aiming for genuine dialogue, one condition is reciprocity. So I'm the outsider to you, the insider, when we're trying to understand your experiences. But when we're trying to understand my experiences, you're the outsider to me. And maybe somewhere in there, that reciprocity is going to be important for genuine dialogue. And they say many women are put in the position of not knowing whether or not to believe the outsider's account of their experiences. And this can cause, cause one to doubt one's own judgment and interpretations of one's own experiences and changes the way one um, experiences her, their life. So this is something we were talking about earlier about the way that other people's knowing of you can change your knowing of you. So now they move on to talking about this second way. And the second way of, of um, theorizing about another's experience is by ex observing myself and others like me. This is the Beauvoir way. And then I develop an account of uh, myself from this, from observation of myself and others like me culturally. And then I use this account to give an account of you. I remake you in my own image. And they say this is feminist theory insofar that it depends on the concept of women as women. So can we have genuine reciprocal dialogue between outsiders and insiders? And the next section is ways of talking or being talked about that are helpful, illuminating, empowering, and respectful. They give five ways that being talked about can be helpful. The first is if it enables one to see how parts of one's life fit together, if it helps one locate oneself concretely in the world rather than add to the mystification of the world and one's location in it, if it enables one to think about the extent to which one is responsible or not for being in that location, and they say, is this criterion at odds with truth? Because it seems to rule out the possibility that those oppressed are just worthless and deserving of that. And they say feminist theory is committed to the moral view that women are worthwhile beings and that women are capable of bringing about a change in their situations. And they ask, does this mean if feminist theory is biased? And their response is, not any more than any other theory. But what is odd, they say, is that feminist theory often has the effect of empowering one group and demoralizing another. So the fourth reason they give for ways being talked about can be helpful is if it provides criteria for change and makes suggestions for modes of resistance that don't merely reflect the situation and values of the theorizer. And they're very clear that we can't assume that what makes that these criteria for change for what makes something better for someone is going to apply to all. So there's a very important difference between developing ideas together 
engaged as equals, and one group developing on the basis of their own experience a set of criteria for good change that they then want to apply for all. And they have this great line about how we think and what we think about depends in large part on who is there, which is also a significant epistemological claim. So the last way they give is to say that theory cannot be useful to anyone interested in resistance and change unless there is reason to believe that knowing what a theory means and believing it to be true have some connection to resistance and change. So we might want to think about this, right, about how and whether or not theorizing about these things, doing feminist philosophy, is actually going to make change. If, because if part of the reason we're doing it is to make change, then hopefully it can do that. So now we're on the um, last section. Now we're moving on to the last section, which is um, titled Some Suggestions About How to Do Theory That Is Not Imperialistic, Ethnocentric, or Disrespectful. And this is done problematically in the voice of a woman of color. So they ask, what would it mean to theorize in a respectful way? And they ask, if we think it is necessary for women of different racial and cultural identities to create feminist theory, altogether, then how do we make this happen? And one thing they point out is white Anglo women have more power and privilege than other women. At the very least, they can use such advantage to provide space and time for other women to think, sorry, other women to speak and think, I'm talking about theorizing. But and, you know, at the beginning, I talked about the way that this article can be read for other outside, for other um, people who have power. So how can other people with more power and privilege say the, you know, the white male students in this class who have social capital, social power, and me, a white woman, how can we use our power and privilege to provide space and time for other people to speak. And there's a great feminist philosopher, Cynthia Willett, who has this beautiful discussion of the way that wolf pups play. And the way that wolf pups and other, and other um, dogs play, and maybe other animals, I don't know, but the one that has more social power, the bigger puppy, when it's playing with a smaller puppy, it does things to give up power. So the puppy will roll over on its back and expose its little vulnerable tummy. And this is a way to signal in play that they are equals and to give up power um, in order to make themselves, in order to equalize themselves on the, on the literal playing field. So what, I mean, I think it, this is a really cool idea what are ways that people with power can give up that social power? And it can, I think there are lots of answers to this. So one that Cynthia Willett talks about is humor. So, um, you know, she has uh, talks about comedians who are making a, a white male comedian 
who's making fun of himself at a, in a prison. And that this is a way that he gives up social power. So then we go on to say in this, this article talks about white, white Anglo women. If you're going to theorize with us, first thing you need to do is recognize and accept that you disturb our dialogues by putting yourself with us and not leaving us in some meaningful sense to ourselves. You must recognize and accept that you have to learn our text. And by text, I mean our many different cultures. You are asking us, white women, to make ourselves more vulnerable to you than we already are before we have any reason to trust you and trust that you will not take advantage of our vulnerability. You will need to learn, white women, to become unintrusive, unimportant, patient to the point of tears, while at the same time open to learning any possible lessons. White women will have to come to, and others who have power, have to come to terms with the sense of alienation, of not belonging, of having your world thoroughly disrupted, criticized, scrutinized from the point of view of those who have been harmed by it. Why would you do this? You could do it out of self-interest. You could do it as a spy, trying to find out as much as possible in order to oppress better. You could do it for reasons of self-growth and expansion. But why should BIPOC women embrace us white women in order to make us better without reciprocity? You could do it out of obligation and duty. But this puts white women in this morally self-righteous position that they say is inappropriate. That it makes BIPOC women the vehicles for the redemption of white women. And they write, we don't want you in our worlds out of a sense of obligation or duty. If you want to do something out of, a, out of obligation, then get out of the way. <laughs> um, so they write, friendship remains the only appropriate and understandable motive for white feminists engaging in theorizing with us. This will motivate you to attain appropriate reciprocity of care. This will mean you have a stake in us and in our world. And this will move you to satisfy the need for reciprocity. Right? Seeing us in our communities will make clear and concrete to you how incomplete we really are in our relationships with you. It is this beginning that forms the proper background for the yearning to understand the understand the text of our cultures that can lead to joint theory making and they point out that this is not to suggest that white women should try to befriend bipoc women for the purpose for this purpose this is a this is a weird thing to do and not a good start to a friendship and instead, they say, it is within friendship that you may be moved by friendship to undergo the very difficult task, white women, of understanding the text of our cultures by understanding our lives in our communities. To be clear to all those who have power who want to give it up, they say, this learning to be quiet, to give space, remain open, 
even when you're hearing things that might make you feel uncomfortable or that are hard to hear. This, this learning is extremely hard because it requires openness, including openness to severe criticism of the world in which people with power like me benefit. It requires sensitivity, requires concentration, concentration self-questioning, and prudence. And um, that's the end of the lecture for today.